You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Well, let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to a number of different passages in Genesis. First of all, we turn to Genesis chapter 42, the verses 1 to 13. And there the word of our God reads as follows. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were twelve brothers and sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. And let's go on to chapter 43, the verses 29 to 34. As he, meaning Joseph, looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out and, controlling himself, said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Then we turn to the next chapter, chapter 44, the verses 14 to 17. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find out things by divination? 
What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now, my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. And then we move on to the last two verses of that chapter. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. As we continue our series of sermons on the Lord's dealings in the life of the patriarch Joseph, we have come to chapter 45, the first 11 verses, which is our text for this afternoon's sermon. And there you have that very dramatic encounter between Joseph and his brothers, where it says, And Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence! So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next Five years there will not be plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, the lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there. Because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Well, of a congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, perhaps the most vexing questions in life are the questions that start with why. How questions tend to deal 
with the manner in which things work or function, where questions usually have to do with direction and destination, what questions tend to be connected to content and information, and when questions tend to be about timing and sequence. But then along come those why questions, and so often they dig deeper. We use them because we want to know more. They often arise because of our curiosity. But you know, they may also arise because some sort of disastrous event has taken place in our lives or in the lives of others. For example, a car backs up in the driveway and runs over a toddler. And we ask, why? Did this happen? Or a teenager is killed in a car accident and again the question is asked. Or a family suffers a whole series of setbacks and troubles. Or a nation experiences a great disaster. Or a town is wiped away by a mudslide. And all sorts of events like that cause us to ask why. We want to know why it is that stuff happens. And especially we want to know why bad stuff happens. Yes, beloved, and I suspect it was the same with Joseph. When his family scorned him as a smart aleck. When his brothers stripped him of his favorite coat, threw him into a hole or well, and sold him to some Midian traders when he was put on the auction block in Egypt and sold as a slave to Potiphar, when he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and thrown into a dungeon, and when he was forgotten in prison by the cupbearer. All of these events and more must have generated in his heart, because he's human, a whole series of whys. Why, Lord, is this happening to me? Why, oh God, do all of these things take place in my life? Why am I suffering from setback after setback? Yes, and then, beloved, I suspect that even when the bad times stopped and the good times came, the wise didn't stop. Why, Lord, have I been given the power to interpret dreams? Why was I called to stand before Pharaoh and not only to interpret his dreams, but also to apply them? And why is it that I have been invested with all the power and the might and magnificence of the land of Egypt? What is God doing? And why? Lots and lots of questions. Yes, and as readers, we have lots of questions too. At least that is if we are first-time readers and we do not know yet the end of the story. The first time when you read it all, as some of you no doubt have done, there are all these whys. But then, beloved, we come to our text of this afternoon, we come to Genesis 45, and, and suddenly we start to get answers. And we begin to see what it is that God is doing. 
We see his overall plan. We come face to face with his purposes. And our whys start to melt away. And that means, beloved, we have come to a critical juncture in what is so often called the Joseph story. And it's a juncture that is worthy of some more special attention. And so I would like to preach to you this afternoon the following theme. God brings Joseph's story to a climax. And we shall see that he leads, first of all, Joseph to reveal himself. Secondly, he causes Joseph to give him the credit. And finally, he has Joseph invite his family to Egypt. Well, beloved, by now it should be quite obvious as the result of this series of sermons that it is God who is the prime mover and the main actor in this whole redemptive drama surrounding Joseph. In other words, this is not just a little cute and exciting human interest story. And neither is this simply a story about the triumph of the human spirit in the face of all kinds of adversity. No, beloved, fundamentally, this story is all about God. Our God. It's about our God at work, safeguarding his people and moving his redemptive program forward. And we saw that a little last week in Genesis 41, where, where God is so obviously behind the great promotion and elevation that Joseph receives. And you see that so often in Scripture. On one level, it is man who is acting. It is the Pharaoh who appoints Joseph. But then there's also another level. A higher one or a deeper one, if you like. And their God is at work for his higher purposes. And it is he who ultimately moves the mind of Pharaoh. But then at the same time, he also moves more. He moves the patriarchal family. The great famine that we were told about at the end of Genesis 41 is felt not only in Egypt, but also in all of the world, we are told. Also in Canaan. And there Jacob, his sons, and his family are facing disaster. And so Jacob sends his, his sons to Egypt in order to buy grain. And once in Egypt, they make their request known, and they are told that they must appear before Zephanas Paniah, Joseph's Egyptian name, you remember. Apparently, special cases and foreign trading parties were sent to him for his personal consideration. And so the brothers come in, and Joseph recognizes them. Think for a moment, it's almost more than 20 years later. And he sees his brothers again. And he knows them. Only they do not know him. Maybe because of the passage of the years, maybe because of all of the finery, maybe because he had his face painted, as they often did in those days. But in any case, his brothers do not recognize him. 
But Joseph sees them. And he knows them. And that immediately raises the question, what now? What next? What sort of approach should Joseph take to his nice brothers? Well, he has, of course, a number of options. Number one, he can reveal himself, greet them warmly, and simply let bygones be bygones. That's one option. He can also reveal himself, accuse them, and have them put to death, and so gain his revenge. That's another option. You might say those are the two obvious ones. But you know there's also a third option, and that's a harder one. And that third option involves testing them, testing them to see if they have changed in those 20-odd years and become different kind of men. If they have not, he can always execute them anyway. But if they have, that calls for quite a different approach. Well, beloved, as you know, Joseph opts for the third possibility. He decides to put his brothers to the test. And you can see how he does so. First of all, he accuses them of being spies. Second, he decides to turn the the absence of their youngest brother into a test of their veracity. Third, he puts them in prison for three days. And fourthly, he has Simeon bound even before their very eyes as taken away as a hostage. And then he sends them away. Back home. And meanwhile, beloved, as all of that is happening, Joseph learns a few things about his brothers. He learns these things because he can eavesdrop. He can understand what they are saying among themselves. Yes, and from their talk among themselves, he knows that what they did to him 20 years before is something that still haunts their lives. Indeed, they look at what is happening to them in Egypt and they say, it's payback time. Verse 21 of chapter 42, they say, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. And that's why this distress, that's why this mess has come upon us. In any case, the brothers finally go home. And it looks like they're not coming back. Upon hearing their story, Father Jacob adamantly refuses to let them go back and take Benjamin along. He can't stand the thought of losing also his youngest and favorite son. But you know, eventually he has to relent. For the famine continues... And the food starts to run out. And if Benjamin does not go with them, then they will all die of starvation in Canaan. And so they head back to Egypt. 
for a second time. And you'll notice once they get back to Egypt, the testing process that, that Joseph has put in place, it continues. Upon their arrival, they are taken to Joseph's house. They meet him again. He wines and he dines them. He even has them sit in order according to their ages, and that surely rattles their cages. And thereafter, he gives Benjamin five times more food than any of his brothers, and he watches them for signs of jealousy. And finally, he sends them on their way again. And once again, the silver goes back into their sacks. But in addition to the silver, there is a silver cup belonging to Joseph that goes into the sack of Benjamin. And why? Because Joseph wants to bring matters to a climax. And later you read it, how he confronts them about Benjamin's supposed theft and insists on keeping him as a slave in Egypt. And then the question is, what are they going to do now? Will they show that they are changed men? Or is it still the same old, vindictive, hard, callous, vengeful, dysfunctional bunch? Will they leave Benjamin in the lurch just like they refused to listen to the pleas of Joseph so many years before? What will they do? You see, beloved, what Joseph is after is true repentance. Scripture tells us there are two kinds of repentance. The one is wordy, worldly, superficial, and filled with crocodile tears. The other is real and deep and heartfelt and sincere. And the kind of repentance that Joseph wants to see in the life of his brothers, you can say, is also the kind of repentance that God wants to see with us. It's the kind of repentance that parents want to see when their children go astray or that elders want to see when members fall into sin. Lord's Day 33 says it has two sides to it. There is the dying of the old nature, which means negatively to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it and flee from it. And there's also the coming to life of the new man, which means positively to to have a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and, and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. True repentance, that's what God wants to see in our lives. And that's what Joseph wants to see in the lives of his brothers. And does he get it? Yes, he does. He truly does. For notice, beloved, when when Joseph threatens to enslave Benjamin permanently, it is Judah who steps forward and intervenes. 
And you may remember Judah. That's the brother who long ago said that Joseph should be sold to the Midianites. And he steps forward and offers to take Benjamin's place. He will act as substitute. He will give up his life, his freedom, his family, his inheritance rights for the sake of his brother. And indeed, Judah here promises to do what one day his great son, Jesus Christ, will do for his people. And that is stand in their place, suffer in their place, die in their place. And so, beloved, finally Joseph, Joseph knows that his brothers have changed. And indeed, God uses Joseph and he gives him the wisdom needed to confront his brothers and bring them to the place of true repentance. Now he can reveal himself to them and spare them. And you'll notice in a very dramatic episode here in Genesis 45 how he sends all of his servants away and he utters those words that, that must have shook his brothers to their core. I am Joseph. And then he asks not, is my father still living? Because he knows he's still living. He's heard that. He asks, is my father well? And the brothers still don't get it. They can't imagine what they're hearing. And so he says it again, I am Joseph. And then he adds those fateful words, the one you sold. It's Egypt. Imagine that. Joseph back from the dead, so to speak. But then notice Joseph doesn't stop there. He adds some very interesting words of commentary when he says, And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to save your lives by a great deliverance. You know, beloved, what Joseph is commenting on here is nothing else than God's wonderful, astounding providence. And what is providence? It's the biblical teaching that God, our God, not only creates all things, but that our God also continues to guide and govern and rule and direct all things. In, in other words, what happens to us in this life does not happen as the result of the forces of chance or accident or luck or fate. This world is not ruled and governed by indifferent or hostile forces or powers. Now the world, our world, is under the dominion of the Lord our God. He rules. And He reigns. 
Admittedly, we are often guilty of forgetting about this. As we live our lives and things happen in our lives, we so often refuse to think or reflect or even relate the things that happen to us to God and to His higher purposes. And it so often seems that it's only when bad things happen that we bring God into the picture. And when we bring Him into the picture, it's usually in a negative and accusing sense. Why did God allow this, we say? Where was God? Why did God not prevent this? So you see, beloved, we either forget about providence or we turn it into a charge against our God. And then, too, there are those times when we try to see God's hand in our lives and we just can't see it. We simply can't figure out what He's doing. I think Joseph had that problem for a long time. He must have had that problem. And we know that Job, Job had that problem. Job didn't know about what was going on in heaven. He didn't have a clue about that conversation between God and Satan about the solidity of God's work of grace in the lives of his saints. All Job experiences is suffering and blow after blow. And he doesn't know why. Indeed, as far as we know, he never gets to the bottom of it. And in the end, he has to find his rest in the greatness of his God and in the wisdom of the Almighty. And there are times when we need to do the same. But then, beloved, there are also other times. I would call them Joseph times. Times when all of a sudden everything falls into place and you can see so very clearly what it is that God is doing in your life. Sometimes God is like a composer of a symphony. He has this instrument make one noise. He has that instrument make another noise. And all of the instruments are different. And all of the sounds coming from them are different. And you wonder, what in the world is going on? When all of a sudden, the instruments start playing together and the most astonishing music imaginable rings out and lights up our hearts. Well, in a way, that's how it was with Joseph. His brothers play one instrument. The Midianites play another instrument. Potiphar and his wife play still another. The baker and the cupbearer play another. Dreams play an instrument. Pharaoh and the famine plays an instrument. Jacob and his sons play an instrument. Everyone plays an instrument. And the end result is that God creates a symphony. 
And the symphony, Joseph says, is that God saves a remnant. And he saves their lives through a great deliverance. Jacob, yes, becomes an instrument in God's hands to keep his people alive. But even more important, to keep the promise of the Messiah alive and moving forward. And so what does that teach us? Well, surely the great thing that that should teach us is to trust in the Lord. It teaches us to trust Him always, and especially in hard and difficult and, I might add, inscrutable circumstances. You may not know why something is happening to you. But be assured, God knows. And He does more than simply know. He also leads all things so that it works out for our good. Later on in chapter 50, Joseph will say it again. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Oh, and if we want to know more about this and drink more deeply from the well of God's providence, then turn to Romans 8 and Hebrews 12. The first one reminds us in a most comforting fashion that God works for the good of those who love Him. At the moment when you are in pain... You do not see it. But one day, you will. Job never saw it, as far as we know, in this life. But I can guarantee you he's seeing it now. He's seeing how God used him to grow not just his faith in the midst of adversity, but to grow the faith of his saints ever since throughout the ages. We all know Job. And we all know the surety of God's work of redemption. Oh, and there's that other passage as well from Hebrews 12. It's to remind us that God so often uses sufferings as means and as tools to shape and mold and mature our lives. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Christians grow best in the soil of adversity. God works for our good. And beloved, if while we are in this life we have struggles with this, and we may very well have those struggles at times, then there's a third and last thing to take note of in our text. Several times here, Joseph extends an invitation, and the invitation is this. He says to his brothers, come close to me. 
And he says to his father, come down to me. The first invitation is one that's full of reconciliation. The second invitation is one that's full of rescue and redemption. He invites his family to join him in Egypt to live there and and so be protected because there are five more years of grueling famine coming and they will not survive them unless they do what God wants and unless they allow Joseph to act as their deliverer. As beloved, and as you hear those invitations, and as you see the role that God gives to Joseph, once again, you cannot help but look a little deeper with your New Testament glasses and see Jesus Christ. Last time we saw all those parallels between Jesus and Joseph. Well, here's another. Joseph invites his family to be reconciled to him and to be rescued by him. And what does that remind us of but a much greater than Joseph? Jesus Christ, who invites all of his children to know him and love him and serve him. And so be rescued by him from sin, the devil, and the world. And to be reconciled with the Heavenly Father. And in the process, he also invites us to come to him. And throw all our burdens on him. Come to me. And that also includes, beloved, the burdens caused and created by by painful things that happen to us in this life and things that we cannot figure out. Why did my husband die so young? Why was my son killed in an accident? Why do I have to struggle with pain every day? Why is my best friend afflicted with such a dreadful disease? Well, often we don't have all the answers. Perhaps one day we shall. But even if that doesn't happen, we may take great comfort in knowing that our God has all the answers. And that ultimately all those answers work to our good. And the proof of that, it's in Christ. The Father who has given us His most precious gift will not withhold His other gifts from us as well. So bring your wise, ask your wise. You may ask them. And sometimes even when you ask them in the midst of frustration and anger, God understands. But He expects you to leave them with Him. One day He may give you a specific answer like He did to Joseph. But on the other hand, He may not. Like Job, 
And you may simply have to find your rest and your peace in the knowledge and certainty of his love and mercy and goodness in Christ. Let's pray. O God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you that you are our refuge and our hiding place, that you are the one to whom we may always go and that we will find in you all that we need for this life and the life to come. And Father, especially when our lives are burdened and our hearts are heavy, And we have all of these questions about why it is that terrible things happen in this life especially. Father, enable us to bring them to you and to leave them with you, trusting in your love, your care, your goodness in Christ. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.